And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I checked in this week with John Meacham, the historian, commentator, and now presidential advisor. You've met him here before, but I wanted to talk to him again about his brilliant new book, And Then There Was Light, Abraham Lincoln and the American Struggle. We spoke about what new insights he had gleaned about Lincoln, who in my view was the greatest American president, and what we can learn from Lincoln's leadership about our own turbulent times. Here's that conversation. John Meacham, it's it's great to see you again. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. You've been productive, as always, uh, since the last time we got together. And I urge people to go and listen to that podcast because we very much focused on your life and career uh, during that podcast. But recently, it should have been less recently, but I, I read uh, your book, uh, your latest book, uh, and there was Light, Abraham Lincoln, and the American Struggle. First of all, there are 15,000 books on Lincoln. Uh, I, th- I read that the only figure who has more biographies written is Jesus Christ. Yep, that's right. Uh, so uh, what made you say, you know what, there's something to be said here that hasn't been said, and I need to say it. Well, the interview with Jesus was tough to get. So, uh, yeah, good for you, by the way. Yeah, but I tried. Great I tried. numbers. Great numbers. I tried. It would have been yeah. huge. We're like Barbara Walters in the old days. Um, <laughs> uh, I think once you get tired of Lincoln, uh, to paraphrase the old line about London, you get tired of life or yeah. you get tired of America. Yeah. Um, it's very much, it's, it's a work of history, but. It unquestionably, uh, it comes out of our own moment of, of, I don't even want to call it division anymore because that suggests that there's something normal about this. Um, for, so here's a, here's a sentence I never thought I would say. For a long time, I hoped that American politics post Obama, to use a local reference, um, were more like 1933 or 1968. Now, imagine saying you hoped something was like 1933 or 1968. Yeah, those are fairly tumultuous times. And I have argued, I still pray that I'm right, uh, that in the fullness of time, that will in in fact, be the case because in 1930, after 33 and after 68, the constitutional experiment continued. But the only moment where we have come as close to ending that constitutional experiment as we are now was in the Civil War. And so part of my question was not so much how Lincoln did what he did, but why? Mm-hmm. Why did he do it? Because I believe. Uh, without getting too preachy, that the crisis we face at this hour is fundamentally a moral one. It's a decision to curb our own appetites and ambitions for the maintenance of an arena where conflicting interests can find peaceable solutions under the rule of law. And the fact that I have to say that to you in this 
in 2023 is just incredible. I think I think you and I met in 06 or 07 or yeah. 08, and it would not, even with the financial crisis, even with uh, the divisions over Iraq, the questions about the war on terror, the in, the world into which uh, you ran one of the most important campaigns in American history, that world... I would give almost anything to have that back. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, and, you know, Dubia will say, you know, I don't look so bad, do I? Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, yeah. So, the, but the link, but I wanted, <laughs> I wanted to know why Lincoln did it because Doris Goodwin is uh, my dear, dear friend. Yes. Um, once uh, there was a great tweet some months ago, which is a very small category. It's like uh, French military, <laughs> French military. A lot of entrance, but a small category. Exactly. That said, if, Dor- if uh, Doris Goodwin and Mr. Rogers had had a one night stand, I would have resulted. Um, so <laughs> I thought it was great. By the way, Dor- did you ever go, uh, you must have visited Doris at her home in Concord. She yeah. Where she's moved from there now. But uh, I-, I mentioned the 15,000 Lincoln yep. books. I think she had most of them. She 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 had a wall uh-huh. that was all Lincoln, and clearly had read every word yep. of, of of every one of those uh, books. But anyway, yep. I, I I digress. No, no, no. Uh, and so, you know, Doris wrote the the masterpiece on his political skill. Yes, my interest team of rivals. Yeah. yeah, my interest was more about the moral development that led this practical politician to make a moral stand in the political arena when it was not an obvious thing to do. The you know the Republican Party, the the the, the second most powerful guy in that party, and arguably perhaps more powerful in terms of party influence, William Seward wouldn't have done what Lincoln did. Right. And so what was it that made Lincoln do it? Because I think the lesson for us has to be, are we willing to sacrifice a certain amount of immediate self-interest in order to keep this experiment going? Yeah. I mean, that is the core of it. And I think, you know, what Lincoln had the advantage that Lincoln had was he, you know, we the country was relatively new. The experiment was relatively new. Uh, and, you know, he summoned the spirit of the revolution and the spirit uh, of, of uh, 1776 in his, in his own rhetoric. And, you know, at Gettysburg and elsewhere, posited it, the war as a test of whether self-governance was possible in the way that the founders uh, imagined it. But let, let's take this in, in stages because there's so much here. But let's talk talk a little bit. The thing that I so loved, I mean, I love the book, but one of the things I loved uh, most about it was the texture and the depth of your storytelling about Lincoln and his development. And I mean, we all know the story about, you know, the abject poverty he came from, the rail splitter, and all of that stuff. I didn't know about that much about his mother and uh, her 
lineage. And and when you listen to, when you read that story, I hear your voice when I uh, read. It's, I'm sorry uh, about that. <laughs> uh, you're in my head, man. But uh, when you when you hear her story or read her story and the story of his family, and, and you do so much of this so well, you sort of see a guy who is searching for his own legitimacy, searching for his own sort of standing, searching to find meaning, uh, who started off in a much different place. But talk about how those early years set him on a course. He, you know, his, uh, I remember speaking to then Senator Obama about this, and I don't know if this line was original to him, but I remember Obama McCain was a great example of the two very different political types in American culture. Tends to be that successful politicians either have a dominant, omnipresent father or no father at all. If you're raising a normal child, they have almost no chance of becoming president. Uh, McCain had the two admirals, uh, President there Obama. are a lot of parents, by the way, out there who are saying, well, that's a relief. <laughs> <laughs> really, but I, it's sort of, I mean, you, we could run through the list. It's, it's kind of amazing. And I remember Obama said, and I, I don't know if the line was original to him. He said, you know, you can, all, you can often say that a man is always trying to live up to his father's expectations or make up for his father's mistakes, mm-hmm. which is an elegant, an elegant yes. way of putting it. What Lincoln was doing is... He was never close to his father at all. And I I think it's possibly because there were rumors that Lincoln himself, that Thomas Lincoln was not the father of Abraham Lincoln. There was a guy named Abe Inlow who wandered around saying that he was Abraham Lincoln's uh, actual father. And his grandmother had been illegitimate. Uh, that was part of the family lore. Now, that was a... I wrote a book about Andrew Jackson. It's very, yeah. com- very complicated to deal with frontier sexual and marital mor- mores. But what is clear from witnesses, I, I witnessed clear testimony, is that Lincoln worried about his own legitimacy and thought that he was the product of a sort of the backstairs. And that did, as you just alluded to, it did create this impetus, I believe. To prove that he was legitimate, to prove that he was worthy of being there, and that's a powerful, powerful force. Yeah, all you have to read Shakespeare uh, mm-hmm. to, right. to understand how how uh, those kinds of men act. So you have the the search for legitimacy. You also have this fascinating to me, and this was something that was almost entirely new to me in doing this. Is how many white anti-slavery Baptists do you think there were in Kentucky in 1809? 500, maybe. I, I doubt there were a thousand, but two of them were Abraham Lincoln's parents, Thomas Lincoln and Nancy Lincoln. They were part of a Baptist denomination that had clear theological, ecclesiastical connections to John Leland, the great Virginia dissenter, who's the author of the line that Jefferson gets credit for, uh, that it makes no difference to me whether my neighbor believes in one God, no God, 
or 20 gods. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. He was a, very much about religious tolerance. And the line then goes from Leland back to the Wilberforce circle around the abolitionist evangelical Anglican movement in, in Great Britain. And so the first sermons, which parenthetically would have been the first public performances that Lincoln ever encountered, would have been from anti-slavery preachers. And it, it, I'm not saying that these were all Garrisonian fire breathers. Uh, there were white economic reasons uh, to be against slavery because if you were a poor white farmer and the rich guy down the down the county could hire slaves, he had you at a, a disadvantage. But by I just want to know what the fruit is. I don't care why it grows. And so if there was anti-slavery, it was tangible and part of the air Lincoln breathed. I find this thing about sermons really fascinating because you know you did they didn't go out farm clear land split rails and then go stream apple tv right they didn't they didn't go to the movies they didn't go to the theater the only public performance the only communal moments besides a marketplace would be a church with a sermon and one of the reasons those sermons are so long when you read the published sermons from the 18th and 19th century is because that's all people had to do. And so I, and Lincoln, we have from his stepmother that Lincoln would memorize these sermons and go and stand on a stump and deliver them to his friends, which may explain why he didn't have a lot of friends. But uh, I think that that language, that cultural oxygen, is absolutely vital because when Lincoln said, I am, in 1864, he said, I am naturally anti-slavery. I cannot remember when I did not so think and so feel. He chose his words carefully. Naturally means from birth. Yeah. And that anti-slavery conviction made the world you and I live in possible because there was every political reason to curb it, delay it, move to gradualism. Right. The core was he said he believed fundamentally that under the Constitution, slavery was a state institution, so he didn't think he had the power to do anything about it in Tennessee or Alabama or Mississippi, any of those states. But the Constitution said that they had the power in the new territories, the new states, and he was not going to give an inch. Yeah, the, there is this constant tension uh, between that that moral imperative and the other quality of Lincoln, which was, as you say, a masterful practicing politician who understood that in a democratic system uh, that a president can't ordain, that a president has to bring people along. Uh, and so finding that, I find that so fascinating. And you talk about lessons. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, when I read your book, uh, I thought there are two things that are important, what you can learn about Lincoln and, and what you can learn from Lincoln. And uh, what I saw and what I think does speak to our times was, uh, as you point out, he there were times when he could have 
made a, he could have compromised right at the beginning of his administration. He could have compromised and ended the issue by extending uh, slavery, uh, you know, to new territories. Uh, but he refused. And there are others, perhaps Seward himself, I think you indicated Seward himself yep. thought that would be the right move. On the other hand, you know, he was uh, the object of a suspicion on the part of uh, the more the most rabid anti-slavery forces because he didn't move fast enough. He didn't em- emancipate uh, enslaved people fast enough and so on. And so there's this tension. Talk about that, about Lincoln, the pragmatic politician who was also driven by moral principle. So I know that's an unfamiliar uh, dynamic for you as both a student and practitioner of politics that you would have a progressive wing that thought you were too slow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And a right wing that thought you were trying to destroy the country. <laughs> uh, I know you haven't dealt with that. Um, I think it's the remor- the reason, one of the reasons to revisit Lincoln is to see how he negotiated both particular and perennial problems. Slavery was a particular problem. But there were perennial forces, human forces, that were undergirding it and perpetuating it. And this, to me, the central question if, of a political life is, do you do the right thing 51% of the time? And if you do, folks who do what I do for a living will probably write books about you. If you don't, you become part of a shadowy mass of of people who may have done the best they could, but didn't transcend the limitations of the moment to actually bend history. And that's what Lincoln did. And as you know, uh, it's, it's a trope in presidential history. These guys get a sentence, right, in the fullness of time. And the sentence for Lincoln is about being persistently anti-slavery and willing to back it up with the force of the union. And I think, and and, and don't listen to me as as a homiletic, let's talk about the winter of 6061. When I'm fortunate enough to trap people into listening to me about this in audiences, usually assisted living facilities where I'm very popular. (laughs) Uh, I will say, how many of you have heard of the Crittenden Compromise? And I think maybe four people in a year have raised their hand. But the Crittenden Compromise, without it, I mean, if that had passed, we would be, I think slavery would have endured into the 20th century. So here, very briefly, is where we are. If you're Abraham Lincoln, you win 39% of the vote. Now, the progressives think you're too slow, but South Carolina clearly didn't because they secede before even before the year is out. They took him seriously. So uh, Crittenden of Kentucky, a senior statesman, had been in the cabinet, had been in the Senate, um, been governor of Kentucky, proposes a totally rational, Henry Clay-like, American mainstream compromise, which was, let's restore the Missouri Compromise Line, take it to the eastern coast of California. California had come in in 1850 as a free state. 
uh, but allow slavery to take root in Arizona and New Mexico. And then the pressure will be relieved, it'll all disappear, and we'll roll forward. Seward was for it. Thurlow Weed, a hugely important Republican commentator, was for it. 20,000 uh, merchants, functionally Wall Street of the era in New York, supported it. All four former U.S. presidents supported it. Lincoln said no. If Lincoln had been purely a political creature, you take that deal. The most powerful person in your party who thinks he should be president, the secretary of state, wants to do – that's a perennial thing too. Yes. Wants you to take it. Lincoln said no. Why did he say no? Because he had actually – and this is a lesson for us. He actually listened – to what the opposition had said. He listened to the designs and ambitions of the white slave-owning South, my part of the world. And those ambitions did not end in the Southeastern Conference. They wanted to go to Cuba. They wanted Nicaragua. They wanted huge parts of Mexico, uh, particularly along the Gulf. They saw slavery not as something that was headed toward extinction, which is what Lincoln insisted that it had to do, but an institution that was going to grow, not shrink. And he said, and this is a speculation, he said this. He said, if we give if we give in now, Charles Francis Adams, by the way, of the Adams dynasty was for that compromise because he thought, well, there aren't, there's not enough plantation land out there so we'll just buy some time with it. Lincoln said no, because if we do this, they're going to come back next year for Cuba and the next year for Terra del Fuego, and it's never going to end. To me, this is like Winston Churchill in May of 1940. He looked across the channel and said, he's gone that far. He cannot go any farther. It's the hinge in many ways. It's as important as D-Day in its way. It's a hinge of the American story because if an American president had ratified the extension of slavery, then the entire anti-slavery character of the Constitution, the entire it – just, it just ends. And I don't see how you get the political or military will back over the next – over the ensuing 40 or 50 years if you take that deal. And this is that part's also not entirely speculative because I was sitting right where I'm sitting right now. And I was reading, because this is a, the exciting kind of life I had, I was reading Lincoln's annual message in 1862. It's, it's glamorous, Dave. Um, yeah. Yeah. But it's it, at the end of that message is the marvelous, uh, the deathless section. You know, you can hear Sam Watterson reading it. Um, uh, my fellow citizens, we cannot escape history. This Congress and this administration will be remembered in spite of itself uh, down to the latest generation, whether we uh, nobly save or meanly lose the last best hope of Earth, right? Boom. Cue the Aaron Copeland. In the middle of that message, sitting in this chair, I sort of flinched. The middle of that message is a Lincoln is proposing a gradual plan of emancipation 
that would not have gone into full effect until 1900. And when you see that that number in an American state paper, it's it's startling. And now somebody could argue, well, aren't you arguing two different things? Uh, No, because he. Well, that's what I'm asking, really. I'm asking about the tension between the political gradualism in places and the sort of line in the sand that he drew. He was fortunate in his enemies, right? One of the other things that I found so riveting for our time in doing this is what the slave-owning interest did is they insisted that they were entirely right. They insisted on their own version of reality, their own set of facts. They did not want to be told they were wrong. They did not want to be challenged. They tried to curb debate. They tried to keep abolitionist publications out of the South. They've been trying that for 30 years to actually control the flow of information into the region because they feared that illumination would lead to emancipation. They wanted to control the inform- what we would call the information ecosystem because they feared what that information could lead to. And they could not envision a world where they were being told that they were wrong. And so they seceded, they fought, and it's pretty clear to me that without Sumter, uh, Lincoln might not have had a, an occasion to do this. But that's a second moment where he was different. Winfield Scott and William Seward, again, were not enthusiastic about fortifying Sumter. They didn't know that it was Civil War worth this fort in in Charleston Harbor. But Lincoln, as a practical man, he understood the South. Southern Illinois, as you know, is like Alabama. Exactly, yeah. And very, very Southern, right? He understood it. And... He had sworn an oath to the Constitution, and you alluded to his uh, reverence for the founders earlier. He, he called them men of iron, and he worried in his first speech in 1839, his first big speech uh, to the Lyceum in Springfield, he worried that heroic deeds were exhausted, uh, that that generation had done everything, and, and would there be a moment for them? And partly because his moral energy and his political power gave him the capacity to put the question before us. And I want to also be clear about something else, and it wanders into woke wars and all that. But let's be very clear that, and I'm a white Southerner, I'm a boringly heterosexual white Southern male Episcopalian, you know, things work out for me in this country. (laughs) But- We did not wake up one morning in the 19th century as a country and say, let's abandon slavery. We fought a war that killed, we now believe, 750,000 people before we did it. And that's an inarguable and difficult and tragic fact at the heart of the American experience. And I don't approve of conservatives, uh, cultural conservatives in our current climate, 
who traditionally support honesty about the past and history, they're trying to shift that. And it's also, uh, this is the only place where there's some equal tension. It's also true that we have fought, a number of Americans have fought to actually make this a more perfect union. And so trying to reduce the complexity of American experience into, you know, this tiny, tiny, simple thing isn't, isn't easy. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your sleep number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number Limited Edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, back to the show. The point I'm trying to elicit from you and as a presidential historian, not just a Lincoln historian, is that it seems to me that the quality that great presidents share is uh, a strong sense of uh, moral direction, uh, a sense of you know a large the larger cause, and the pragmatism to function within a very fractious and difficult political environment. And Lincoln, to me, epitomized that. Uh, you know, he, uh, and and sort of the pacing of the Emancipation Proclamation is an example of that, uh, which came not long after that message that you mentioned that would have extended the franchise of slavery till the turn of the century. The So the preliminary proclamation was in September. And the message I'm talking about was in December. It was afterward. You you don't need to elicit that from me because you just said it perfectly. Great presidents, and I would argue great American publics at a given time, are those who, despite appetite, ambition, selfishness, greed, cruelty, despite those things, create and sustain an ethos of opportunity and equality before the law and possibility. And the most important sentence ever originally rendered in English was by from the pen of Thomas Jefferson that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator. And that sentence has changed more lives around the world 
than any other originally in English. I am careful sometimes about that because of the old story about the Texas gubernatorial candidate who was against teaching Spanish in the public schools and said on the stump one day, if English was good enough for our Lord Jesus Christ, it's good enough for <laughs> Texas. So, But I believe, I believe that. I believe that it has done that. And it's, if you let the perfect be the enemy of the good, then you should not be in politics. You should be a philosopher. Uh, you have a right to think that, of course. But great presidents, and I would argue voters who do great things, are those who understand that we live in a fallen, frail, infallible world, and that if we can get things, just make things just a little bit better, then that's more than most people have done. I want to. I don't want to leave Lincoln, but I'm going to take a short diversion because it it speaks to uh, the larger questions that you you mentioned um, earlier, but about where we are today and lessons to be derived today. And here's the question for you. You, uh, you are the uh, co-chair of the Vanderbilt Project on Unity and American Democracy. You're thinking about these questions deeply. It seems to me that we have a perverse set of incentives in our politics and our media today that uh, are making it very difficult to achieve the things that, you know, we're talking about uh, in reference to Lincoln because we have social media and cable television, uh, the, the uh, you know, the, the producers of which have uh, divined do best when we micro target and appeal to people's sense of outrage and, and uh, aggrievement uh, rather than our common uh, humanity and our common uh, uh, you know, dreams, then, uh, we, and we have politicians who have discovered the same thing. And the more divided we become, the more profit there is in appealing to people's sense of agreement. And how we get out of that? Well, I think you've made a series of really important points. What, and let me, let me, let me start with a, a slightly small one and then go to the bigger one. It's the hardest thing to say on television. The hardest thing to say in a forum like this is I don't know, or I haven't really come to a conclusion on that. That's the quickest way for people to cut to the other guy in the box, <laughs> right? The other panelist. So we have the, one of the perverse incentives, and I'm guilty of this, right? This is, so this is, a, this is a homily from a sinner, not a saying by, by God knows. The, the tyranny of the need to appear self-assured and absolutely unflappable is a, is a very complicated one. And I don't know that it's really helped us because most of the time, let me just say this, a good portion of the time, you know this from your time in the arena, I know this from history, People aren't sure what to do. We're human beings. We make mistakes. We drop the ball here. We catch the ball there. And sometimes you just don't know. And that's a human truth. It's a biblical truth. It's it's just it's it's an ancient reality that is new in every generation. And 
what I worry about most in terms of the media climate you're talking about is there, yes, there is the reflexive partisanship and the yelling and the disintermediation, as our friend David Von Draley, that's what he saw about Trump early, is that Trump was the political version of disintermediation. Um, you know, he was the Amazon Prime of uh, grievance. I worry that we just don't have any patience. I understand the polarization. I understand the partisanship. But patience, which goes to what we're talking about with Lincoln, who the reason the abolitionists were unhappy with him is that it took him, what, 18 months to undo 300 years of something? Yeah, that's pretty good. Now, I wasn't an enslaved person, so I can say that. But in the in the broad sweep of history, given what Frederick Douglass said, given the opinion of the country that he was bound to consult as a statesman, you know, that's, and again, what I'm saying here, Frederick Douglass would agree with. Their relationship, by the way, I don't want you to expound on it because we we have limited time, but yeah. one of the things I enjoyed about your book is is the teasing out of the relationship between Frederick Douglass and Lincoln, which was fascinating. All right. I want, I want Axe Files to take up this cause. Um, okay. I'm on a campaign to get a monument of Frederick Douglass on the National Mall. Yeah. All right. And Sign so me get up. on that. <laughs> Sign me up. Uh, I think I, I think he's one. I think he's the most important American of the 1960s. I mean, an in, in incredible story. Escapes from slavery, self-taught. His words. The the title of the book it comes from Genesis, obviously, but it came from Genesis through Frederick Douglass, who said, "I for one do not despair of this country. The fiat of the Almighty, let there be light, has not yet spent its force." And that's an answer to the question you asked a second ago. How do we get out of this? We get out of it by just enough of us saying that's a circus, that's not serious, and let's take a sober assessment of the choices we're going to make. And one of the things, and you've forgotten more about this than I know, but the 24 election, which is vital, we always say they're all vital. This one's really vital. It's going to be decided by what? A million people in five states, more or less? Yes. And maybe maybe three, maybe four states. I don't know. Those are the people. And they're not watching cable news, I don't think. And if they are, they're not devoted to one to one of them. What I think Lincoln tells us, what I think Douglas tells us, what I think Harriet Tubman tells us, what I think the the experience of a generation of people who were actually willing to die for an ideal of the country. And it was an ideal of the country that was about reaching out and not about just clenching a fist. Their lesson is that there is a right and there is a wrong. And in extremis, go with what's right. The reason I wrote this book uh, somebody like me always has to climb the Lincoln Mountain once, but the reason I wrote it now is because we have learned in the last seven years that if you send someone to the pinnacle of power with no conscience and no commitment to anything beyond the preservation of their own power, 
that is fatal to American liberty. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now, back to the show. I think that democracy really depends on rules and laws and norms and institutions and a shared commitment to them. And uh, I've said many times here and elsewhere, you know, there have been Republican presidents and Democratic presidents. I may differ with some, but what has been generally consistent is a commitment to those institutions of our democracy, to those norms that democracies demand. I mean, George W. Bush was incredibly gracious to us in the transition, not because we were so kind to him uh, in the campaign. We weren't, but because he thought of himself as a trustee of that democracy and that that was his role. And and Donald Trump doesn't have that. Uh, it d- doesn't share that view. Uh, and uh, in, in fact, uh, sees these institutions and rules and laws and norms as impediments to his own ambitions. And that's a, that's a big problem. But getting back to what you were saying before, just bringing it back to Lincoln, the, the, the word humility is really important. And this acknowledgement that we may, you know, that it's hard to know sometimes uh, what the right path is and whether every whether every decision and every path you take is right. What's striking about Lincoln is the degree to which he is at once firm in his moral beliefs and constantly questioning his own worthiness, his own wisdom. I mean, one of the questions I have is how would a guy like that function in today's environment? A guy who wrestled with depression, uh, you know, who uh, who struggled mightily with his own sense of place and self and but mainly you know how the issue of depression is it's one that interests me but the guy on the one hand was a tower of strength and on the other hand was constantly questioning his own worthiness his own judgments not not the portrait of a politician who yeah. succeeds in american politics today no. I think the the chief to me one of the chief lessons if I were running for office that I would want to take from Lincoln is he did have a sense of history not in the so here are the three analogies to get through this congressional fight not that but that you were acting in the present and that would affect how posterity saw you and judged you. And he believed that greatness was commensurate with the degree to which you can bend 
reality to conscience. And yes, there are many moral ambiguities in life. Human enslavement is not one of those morally ambiguous things. It's just not. There are almost always different paths to take. But in American history, there have been some moments where it's been pretty clear. Enslavement, Hitler, civil rights, I would argue. I would argue the Cold War, you can disagree about means, but the ends of it were pretty clear. And so, and it's not given to every generation to have one of those, but we have one. We have a choice between a segment of the population and a party and a president, an incumbent president, who believe in the Constitution. And we have a, and the choice is a party of insurrection and self interest that could take us down a road that no one should want to go. And one of the things about leaving the institutions you're talking about, leaving the norms behind, is you better be very, very certain if you're going to tear down those institutions, you better be awfully sure you're going to control everything because once you do away with the rule of law, then it's entirely about the rule of the strong. And if history teaches us one thing, it is that the strong of today can be the weak of tomorrow. I think, by the way, just to interject something here, I think that the rule of the strong is what Trump believes in. I think he sees the world as the Hunger Games and the strong take what they want, however they need to, however they take it. Why did he call it genius when uh, Putin rolled into Ukraine? Because he, he thought, if you can take it, why not? And that is, that is I call this the, the problem of the third chapter of Genesis, right? We've been doing this since then. Third chapter of Genesis, there's a piece of fruit. We were told not to take it. We took it anyway. This is about appetite. What you just said is about appetite and wanting to take something because it is there and because you can, as you just said. The point of the American Republic in many, many ways, not all, but in many ways, was to check and balance those appetites and ambitions. And if you do away with that because you are strong in this season, my point is it's going to turn. It always turns. And so the reason you have these institutions is not just because it's notionally good, and not just because you learned it in civics class or it's 4th of July or people like me and Doris talk about it. It's in your interest to have rules. You may want to shift metaphors. You may want to speed and drive recklessly, but you don't want the other people speeding and driving recklessly because that endangers you. That's the point. And the fact that you and I are talking about Hobbes and Locke and Genesis in 2023 is remarkable, but we can't be overly polite about this anymore. And we should point out that you've been advising the president. So if some of these themes sound familiar, that's why this whole issue of 
Battle for the Soul of America. The thing that, and I don't want to be, I mean, I think democracy is an ongoing battle between cynicism and hope, and I always want to be on the side of hope. Yep. But I, I think the, the thing we need to overcome is the technological advances that we that continue to churn to this day has uh, have found a way to slice and dice us in ways that we're getting a completely different set of conversations and facts. Now, I know there were newspapers that did that in the time of Lincoln and so on, but this is a much more insidious yeah. and intrusive thing. It's forced upon you in many ways. You know, the, uh, and I suspect you remember this from Chicago. Um, one way of thinking about this is it's the difference between Facebook and a mimeograph machine. When I, when I started out as a newspaper reporter in Tennessee, the John Birch Society would use a mimeograph machine. And I remember there was one woman in downtown Chattanooga who used to hand me, you know, Robert Welch wisdom. <laughs> yeah. On that old blue, remember that blue mimeograph? Yeah, sure. And to get the word out, you needed to buy Richard Vigory's mailing list. Yeah. Right? You needed to, you know, you had to, it was just harder. And yeah. um, now you're a keystroke away. Yeah, and you're right. And you and you end up you 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 search for one thing, and suddenly they know exactly where you are. Um, it's it's it it is it's 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 a difference not just of degree but of kind. But the underlying what I would argue is that the underlying force, the underlying question, which is, do we see each other? as rival economic and cultural units, or do we see each other as neighbors? Mm -hmm. And on that question hangs democracy. Yeah. And what I'm saying, I thoroughly agree with you. And what I'm saying is that we are fighting on a lot of fronts here, some of which we can't even see uh, that are being driven by this sort of mad technological, I don't want to sound like a Luddite, but technological churning. Let me ask you one other thing. You know, I've always thought about the difference an assassin's bullet can make in history. And, you know, there are ample examples, you know, uh, World War One, And, uh, uh, yeah, I think about Yitzhak Rabin and Kennedy and others. But Lincoln's assassination, you know, we're, we're still having some of the debates now that we had post-Civil War. And I guess my question for you is, and your book doesn't really extend there, but how would Lincoln have fun functioned in the Reconstruction environment? And would Reconstruction have been different? We had Andrew Johnson, who certainly uh, one of the worst presidents in American yep. history, who was there to placate the South. Lincoln put him on the ticket for that reason. If Lincoln had been there, would the story have been different? It would have been different. I fear it would not have been so radically different that we would have the same view of Lincoln. As Harry Truman once said, heroes always know when to die, uh, which given FDR tells you how Truman saw his job in those first years. Lincoln, what, what, you know, there's, a, there's a trope in Lincoln Anna, as you know, which is that he was growing. He was, and, and that's, unquestionably true. It's often said, though, that he was growing in terms of his anti-slavery commitment. That's not true. He was anti-slavery. What there was some growth on was his egalitarianism in the sense of he had a very 
to me, a tragic block on applying the logic of his argument from the 1850s forward, which was if black people are covered by the Declaration of Independence, how can they not be eligible for citizenship? And that was a huge issue, as you know, in 1858 when he ran against Douglas, uh, Stephen Douglas. He was, that's where there was growth. He was, uh, although I say you've dealt with uh, presidential scheduling and that sort of thing. One of my perhaps somewhat irreverent uh, views is if Abraham Lincoln had had a cold on April 11th, 1865, and had not given the speech he gave about extending the franchise to blacks in uh, Louisiana, we might have a very different historical view of him because that was the first significant public utterance where he showed this this journey. So the argument for Lincoln, the Reconstruction president, as vastly transformative hangs in many ways on that speech. Also on his refusal in 1864 and 65 to put emancipation on the table in peace talks with the Confederacy. But the citizenship argument, the voting argument, the franchise argument is important. It, it is, it's hard to imagine things could have gone any worse than they did under Andrew Johnson. And one of the great uh, negative arguments about Lincoln in American history has to be the decision to put Johnson on the ticket in Baltimore uh, in uh, 1864. Someone should write a lovely counterfactual I don't want to do it, but anyone who wants to do it, please take this idea and run. <laughs> called the president, the lost presidency of Hannibal Hamlin. Yeah, right. New England Republican, Maine, because we're Maine, vice president uh, in the first term. Yeah, in the first term, what would the world have looked like if a radical Republican had been president? And you know, there was. I've come the longer I've done this, I've come to see Charles Sumner more and more as one of the most important people. Um, and Sumner, now mostly famous for having been beaten uh, right. by Preston Brooks of South Carolina. Senator from Massachusetts. Yeah. yeah. And Sumner had an insight, which was, it was called the state, you know, the state suicide theory. Remember no. this? So the state suicide theory propounded by Sumner was that the southern states, by seceding and taking up arms against the Constitution, had committed political suicide. And that therefore the states were now unorganized federal territory and should be reconstructed entirely. And you could imagine how people's blood pressure uh, yes. would go about that. But, you know, as to go straight at your question, so here's Sumner over here with the state suicide theory. There's the a very conservative democratic view of the era, which was, let's just get this over with quickly and go on. And if Lincoln had been in between those two, I think we'd, we would have a, we would have had a better and, and different story. You're exactly right. I'm glad you raised it about, about the bullet. I think that Ford's theater in Dallas are in Memphis are moments where it's not being overly sentimental to say we would be living in a, different and better country if Lincoln, Kennedy, and King had survived. I, I should end it there, but I want to ask you one other thing because it's something about something 
that I've always appreciated about Lincoln that I think is underappreciated that you make note of in your book. Uh, Lincoln was a guy of extraordinary vision and intellectual curiosity. He was an amateur inventor. Uh, I mean, there was, there was this aspect to him. So in the midst of the war in 1862, you said in the successive days, I think, he signed the bill that created land-grant colleges, the Morrill Act. He signed the bill that laid the foundation for the Transcontinental Railroad. And, and you didn't mention it. It may not have been in that same grouping, but he started the National Science Foundation as well. And to me, you think about the things that are pillars of our economic growth today, infrastructure, education, science. And here he was in the middle of a war planning for the future of the economic future of the country that would yield opportunity to the largest number of people. And I don't think he gets nearly enough credit for that. He doesn't. And uh, my friend Harold Holzer, uh, who yeah. has forgotten more about Lincoln than, than either one of us, <laughs> just fantastic. Harold wrote a wonderful book uh, called A Just and Generous Nation that I recommend to everybody, which is basically Lincoln as architect of American middle class. Uh, exactly along the lines you're you're talking about. And it also goes to what I think is probably his most important, least famous speech, which is so important for us today too. But it was, it was I think it was August 22nd, uh, 1864. The 164th uh, Ohio Regiment has come to the White House to hear a talk and then go back. And that's how he campaigned, right? His union soldiers would kind of come through Washington. He would talk to them. They would go back and presumably vote. And he said that if the war lasts another year or two years, that will fall into the scope of history as it, as it should. Because the reason it's being fought is that you, meaning the soldiers, should have an open field and a fair chance for your industry, intelligence, and enterprise, an open field and a fair chance. And I think that's in many ways the economic uh, version of the Gettysburg Address. Gettysburg is philosophy. The August 1864 is the opportunity. Yeah. And you know what? There is a linkage between the truth, too, because if people feel in, as if the system yields uh, an open field and uh, what was the second phrase? A fair chance. And a fair chance. They're more committed to the, the system itself. Uh, and so, but it just speaks to the wisdom uh, of the man. Uh, I really, really recommend uh, oh, thank anyone you. who hasn't. I suspect many people have read this book already. I don't know how many you've never, sold. But never too many. <laughs> but it really, even if you've read many, many Lincoln biographies, uh, this is one uh, well well worth uh, reading. And John Meacham, it's always fun to sit down and chat with you. I look forward to these next couple of years and, uh, and hope that your optimistic view of uh, the wheels of history, of American history, uh, reflect themselves in, uh, in, in the results and we move forward and we navigate through this turbulent period. But uh, there's a lot of wisdom in this book that could be applied. So thank you, David. Great to see you. Thanks thanks for doing this. And we uh, look forward. You're working on Eisenhower now, is that right? I'm doing it, which is another interesting president who appreciated science and technology. Yeah. Uh, 
he was one of the early advocates of the tank in the army. Um, and of course, and one of the reasons he was for the interstate highway system is he had to tra- traverse the United States in the fall of 1919, and it took something like 62 days. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, I uh, we will we'll come back and talk about him another day. Thank you, so, sir. Thanks, John. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Finder Annenberg. The show is also produced by Jeff Fox and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.